Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about the uh, episode that we have ahead of us. You know, he's uh, definitely a founder that, uh, you know, he's built a tremendous company. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff that we like to hear. But also, you know, like how to focus on what matters, you know, as a, a founder, as an operator. Also, how to run a business, you know, when it comes to being able to double or triple, you know, what's happening without really going into the crazy burn rates that you typically see with hyper growth companies that have VCs behind them. You know, in fact, you know, they've been able to maintain that type of growth rate with, a, you know, being cash flow positive. And then also how they think about AI. You know, the space definitely is evolving. You know, everyone is talking about AI uh, and also about, you know, their journey into capital raising. They've raised quite a bit of money, but also, you know, a really amazing valuation. You know, it was $9.1 billion, the last day valuation that was disclosed. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jeff Denworth. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Originally born in the southern half of New Jersey. How was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. I'm a Jersey boy. Just grew up in the burbs. Little beige house, four bedrooms, two-car garage. Not really anything fancy about that. It was uh, kind of a, an average, you know, middle-class childhood. So what got you, Jeff, you know, into into marketing, into, you know, getting out there, getting, getting the word out there, you know, about products, services, and stuff like that? What got you into that? I think, you know, I, to be honest, I think I'm a secret salesperson. Some, sometimes kind of dresses up as a marketing guy when I go to work in the morning. So, uh so it's funny, actually, when I um, was graduating college, Xerox ran a competition to, you know, basically some like executive in the sales team came in and said, sell me this printer. And, you know, there was like in my business school, there's probably a few hundred people that went after this, you got a big multi-thousand dollar cash prize out of it. And I won. And so actually, my first my first jobs were in the sales in the sales domain. Um, and, you know, I, I sold a lot of um, IT hardware. I sold a lot of IT software. And um, it, it was a job right around 24, excuse me, 2005 or so, where um, the CEO of the company said, well, I need you to start this new product. And that took me into product management, uh, which and then through a downturn, uh, he basically fired most of the marketing management that, you know, product management rolled up to. And he said, you're just going to run everything. And uh, then I became the head of marketing for a multi-hundred million dollar company. And the rest is kind of... Uh, Rest is history, as I say. And what about getting into the world of uh, technology companies? Because that's ultimately, you know, the first thing, the first entry point into the world of, um, you know, business and your career too. It is. It is. You know, in, when you go to school outside of New York, most of the successful people all went into J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and places like that, and it's very few people, particularly at the time, going into technology. Uh, this is like 2000 or so. Um, but but interestingly, in, in business school, all the case studies that we were looking at were around things like, um, you, you, you know, you the case study for AOL, talking about shipping CDs out in every newspaper, if you go back 
like 20, 25 years ago, or, um, or Hewlett and Packard, you could start a business in a garage, which, you know, if you're hanging around people that just study JP Morgan all day long, it's the opposite of how businesses were started. So, you know, I kind of saw this new horizon where um, a new type of business would be, uh, would, would be created and a new industry would be created that um, was really exciting. And I decided, well, let, let me play my hand at technology. So now in your case, you, um, you kind of like experienced, um, I would say the, the world of business, marketing, sales. I mean, as you were alluding to it, you know, you got started more on the business development, then you transitioned to sales and then marketing. I guess what kind of what kind of view did I did I give you into because I mean a lot of people are like, especially in the startup world, like, hey, you build something cool and and then that's it. No, I mean you gotta get the word out there. If if people don't know about it, then you're you're not gonna do much. So so what kind of what kind of view or perspective did it give you being able to really understand business development, sales, and also marketing before becoming a founder? Um, that's a great question. So I think you know, the first thing is that people hate salespeople. You know, when's how many how many spam emails and calls do you get in a day? It's just as as just being buyers of anything, we get conditioned by this idea that if somebody's trying to approach you with a concept, you, know, you, you kind of get concerned that they're trying to take advantage of you or get an unsure, unfair amount of money from you. So I, I learned really early on that unless you're, unless you're educating, you're just kind of like a slimy sales guy. And it turns out that that process of education is super important for kind of all aspects of business. Like you said, business development and then, you know, marketing is basically just as opposed to um, unicasting your education as a salesperson, you go to broadcast that and you get to, you know, talk to whole markets. And so the things that I learned really on is that, you know, if, if your statements have empty calories, first of all, people are going to be suspicious of you and they're definitely not going to buy from you. Second thing I learned is that, um, you know, if, if you really can educate, then then people will appreciate you so much more than they'll appreciate people that just try to take their money. And uh, I've carried that with me since those days and I've uh, got a pretty successful career as a result. I love that. You know, it's saying um, in order to, re to receive, to receive, you need to give, right? I agree. And uh, what you're saying there is, is so powerful, so profound. So uh, I guess in your case, you know, when you were at uh, Cetera, which was an Israeli company, that was the most immediate step before you venturing into the world of, uh, you know, being a founder. So I guess what happened? You know, what, what was that call, that phone call that you received? Oh, it's, um, so I actually got a text message and it was from one of my old, uh, one of, a former boss who I have to, you know, Josh, if you're listening to this, I just have to thank you again for sending me this text message because it's, it's literally changed my life. But uh, I got a text message and it said, you're going to get a call from a guy and you don't want to ignore this call. And so um, so I ended up getting a call from a guy who's the CEO of Vast, a gentleman by the name of Renan, who is easily um, one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And um, he basically said, we're starting a storage company. And if you know the world of IT, you know, data storage is definitely not a sexy place to operate. These are like the people that build the plumbing for uh for application infrastructure. And, and at a time, you know, everybody was going cloud. And so <clears throat> I didn't listen to Josh and I told Renan no, because I was an idiot. Uh, and, and, you know, Renan called back and he said, I don't think you understand what I'm, what I'm proposing. 
who's looking for somebody to basically come in and help them start the company from the go-to-market perspective. Uh, and so I had him talk to a few of my friends and, and it, those, those people, you know, they didn't understand the AI or the market opportunity that would create, but they did understand how to build business. And they said, okay, you probably build a multi-billion dollar business. It won't be huge, but, and so even then I said, no. Um, and it turns out that I had a really bad day uh, at, at my previous job where um, I, I realized I, I had like one of those real moments of business clarity uh, that I, I hope every co-founder has at some point before they get into the job, which is you know, you, you're sitting in a, in, a, in a company that you didn't start and you're listening to people talk about plans that you, you never were part of originating. And I realized that, that on that bad day, that um, once you set up like a company's core DNA, it's very difficult to change that. The mission is very difficult to change. And I realized that that moment, if I was going to be working in a company that made bad decisions, I wanted them to be my bad decisions, not somebody else's, because ultimately I only have myself to blame. So um, so, so th at that moment, I called Renan back and I said, I'm in. And I didn't entirely understand the technology that he had conceived of and how awesome it would be. But I knew that I wanted to be a co-founder. I had graduated from this idea of learning about businesses, and I wanted to try my hand at creating one from the ground up. So what happened next? <laughs> we worked like hell for eight years. So, okay, so that's a great question. So I'm, I'm uh, I, you know, like I said, I'm a secret sales guy disguised as a marketing and product person. And so they hire me into the company and they're like, okay, get to work. And the product is in development. The product they didn't even start coding yet, right? So they're just kind of thinking about what this thing should be, and they're doing a ton of architecture work, a lot of software architecture. And I'm sitting around twiddle, twiddling my thumbs, saying, "What should I do?" So I did the only thing I know how to do, and I just took, a, I made a slide deck, and I went out and I started selling it all around the world. I'm a very listless person, and so literally, I get on a plane and I travel from city to city to city, telling people the idea. And it was really cool because, you know, when you're in stealth mode, you can say, I know something that nobody else knows. And I can tell you, but, you know, you have to sign an NDA. It's a really special event. And we don't want anybody to find out about our crazy technology. But the key was we were always asking for help. And that process of asking for help can really get a customer engaged in ways that are way different than if you're asking to sell them something. Right? It's like you said earlier, you have to, you have to give to get. And here we were we were getting to get, um, which is a different kind of process. But I, I really believe in the in the technology space, the customers that you sell to are engineers, and engineers love to create. And so if you give them a new ball of clay and you say, "Here's a new thing," and what would you do with this? Then you start to collaborate. And so by the time we came out of stealth mode, well, I'll get to stealth mode in a, coming out of stealth mode in a moment. By the time we had a product actually shipped. We had a list of some of the world's best data users and some of the world's best data processors that it was as long as my arm, people lining up saying, we want this right now, um, where we had just, the, just this awesome opportunity to kind of lay the early foundation of our go-to-market with some of the smartest customers in the world that were just providing real-time feedback about what we're making, such that when it came time to open up the spigot and start selling, um, the, the checks were very meaningful. Uh, and, and almost surprising, I would say, to some respect. That's incredible. So I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Vast Data? How do you guys make money? <laughs> so um, so we're a provider of, of what we call a data platform. So what's a data platform? 
Um, uh, essentially, what we've done is we've built this new uh, distributed systems architecture. We think we've solved for a lot of the scaling uh, and cost challenges of um, legacy distributed data storage and processing systems. Um, and we built this thing that's just massively scalable and super affordable. And so think about it as combining a storage layer where you put all your data, uh, a database layer where you organize all of your data, um, and a co computational layer where you basically can refine raw data into something that has structure that you can go and interrogate upon or query against, to use a kind of business intelligence terms. Um, but the difference is, and, and data platforms aren't new, right? There are very popular companies in the marketplace that offer data platforms. Companies like Snowflake uh, in the data warehousing space, um, Databricks in the data processing space. The difference with VAST is that we work on a, on a data type that's largely not been usable by enterprises um, for the last 20 years, 30 years or so. It's called unstructured data. So, you know, the, the video that we're making right now or the audio uh, that we're making right now is unstructured, right? You don't know what's inside of it such that you can't go and analyze that without some sort of additional AI. And that's the interesting thing. For the first time ever, now you have processors in the form of GPUs and you have technologies in the form of neural networks that can actually make sense of this data that doesn't have natural structure. I'm talking about videos, I'm talking about imagery, I'm talking about free text, I'm talking about data coming off of instruments or, or you know, things like satellites. And so the point is, there's a market event that's happening right now around something called deep learning. And deep learning is opening up access to all the world's data that wasn't processable and queryable up until now. If you look at the, the, all the data in the world, roughly 95% of the world's data is unstructured. That means 5% sitting in those core business systems that all these business analysts are working with. And the rest of it is our opportunity to go and, and just completely open up insights. So that's what we've been working on. Um, the, the, the system is designed for organizations that have real scaling challenges. So some of the world's largest uh, enterprises use this, use this to process their unstructured data. Some of the world's largest um, service providers, particularly the ones that are born in the era of AI, are now taking our product out to market as a, as a service, right? So these are companies that are just starting to become really popular, like um, CoreWeave, which is known to be like the world's, one of the world's largest concentrations of GPUs. Uh, they're building some amazing infrastructure. Uh, other organizations like Core42 in the Middle East or Lambda Labs or, or Genesis Cloud, these are these are a new crop of, um, of AI CSPs that are emerging to, to basically solve um, for the infrastructure challenges of just very, very, very large systems. Uh, and so, so, yeah, we've been fortunate to work with um, the biggest enterprises and the biggest service providers that are emerging in the AI space to, to really couple um, the data story with the processing story that's largely been defined by um, NVIDIA up until now. NVIDIA is an investor in Vast, and, um, and we're unlocking access to all of a customer's data so that you can, you can run these new AI applications against them. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the company, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, I think the number is somewhere in the range of like 380. It's just a touch under $400 million um, to date. And I believe it was announced the last valuation, $9.1 which is pretty remarkable, huh? being the, the one of the co-founders of something so incredible, so meaningful. No? Now, I guess, how has been the journey, too, of going through, you know, from one financing cycle to the next? How has it been for, for all of you guys? Well, I, I think the, the first, I mean, the, the, probably the most critical part of fundraising is that you should never need money. Right. Um, and it's always good to take the money when the investors want to come to you as opposed to vice versa. Um, and then the second consideration is choosing the right investors and because they're you're basically your business partners as you kind of grow and scale the business. And um, good ones are there, I think, to to provide support when you need it and keep out of your hair. Uh, and, and, and we've just been uh, really super fortunate in this regard. But um, so we, we just closed Series E. Uh, this was a little bit less than $100 million invested. So if you do the math, it's just like a touch under 1% dilution to basically go the, grow the valuation by 2.5x. Now, if we look at the market right now, um, there aren't a lot of companies that are growing their valuation to that scale. And actually, when we studied, okay, of companies that are over $5 billion, who are the ones that have grown their businesses in terms of valuation by more than a factor of two over the last two years? There's only like five in the market, right? You have OpenAI and you have Anthropic at the application level. You have CoreWeave at the data center level. Uh, and you have NVIDIA at the, the processor and the training framework level. And then you have Vast, right? And what's the commonality between that? Well, what you have is the, the modern stack for the AI era that's now being expressed in business terms uh, in terms of market recognition. And so... We see some really, um, really strong signals from the market that we're working in areas where, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, societal impact. But Series E was was the fifth of the funding rounds that we've taken. So, uh, like I said, it's always better to, to raise when you don't need money. And I think the, the, the key here is that we run the business very, very financially conservatively, even though we're growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, we try not to burn any cash. And actually, the company has, has been in a mode where we've been generating cash over the last three three years or so. Um, and that comes from a unique business model where um, we're a software company. We sell software on a subscription basis, but we sell multi-year terms uh, in terms of contract length, and we take all the cash up front. And so 
that that kind of like prepayment of cash allows us to to continue to fund the growth machine without having to go back and ask the investment community for money, which puts uh, most of the capital raises on on our terms and not a not investor terms. That's incredible. I mean, that really says a lot uh, about you guys because you know one thing that uh, we've seen is. You know, a year or two ago, it's like money was free. You know, everyone was like inflating the valuations by a mile. And, and obviously, you know, the fact that you guys have been able to um, to have that mindset of just being capital efficient, you know, and effective. Uh, and, and really, as you were saying, not really relying on on capital to, 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 to have that level of growth. I mean, how have you guys been able to really achieve that? Because when you have the capital, it's easy to get lazy and, and, and just to go burn and, and, and grow like crazy. I'm wondering, like, what what's ingrained in the in the culture of vast, you know, that that has pushed you guys with that mindset? Well, I think it's probably uh, one um, cultural aspect, and then there's you know things that happen in the market that become reinforcement events. Right. So, from a cultural perspective, every person that comes here is is essentially challenged to run the business as if it was their own. Right. If I give you uh, a um, Kind of a gift card for you know let's say i give you a thousand dollar visa gift card you go spend that because it's found money but if i say i need a thousand dollars from you and then i give it back to you then think twice about how you've spent that money because now you're you're kind of you're balancing the how much do i conserve versus how much do i have equation and that is from a cultural perspective ingrained into every single employee at vast where um this is a finite resource uh, and and you know debt or um, or cash burn results in a vulnerability, and we don't want to be vulnerable. We want to be unstoppable, and so we think really hard about every dollar that we spend. Now, it becomes easy to kind of get confused with your success over time, and and we've been, for better or worse, there have been market events that reinforce the fact that we made some really smart choices, right? So when COVID hit. Everybody's taking PPV and, and people were laying off as like a preemptive measure. And we just, we kept a very, very steady hand and we said, okay, we're fine, right? We've got tons of money in the bank. Everything's good. Um, then, you know, uh, two years later, the recessionary uh, kind of elements started to creep into the market. Same thing. We're fine. We don't really care. And a few months after that, it turns out Silicon Valley Bank went under and um, we found ourselves 70 million dollars poorer the day that that happened because we had a we had a lot of money tied up in svp and so i remember calling our ceo Brendan and i said um hey uh, i'm just going to give you like two minutes to yell you know you can yell at me or you can yell at the world i don't care but you know i, I just need to give you a, a chance to vent because losing 70 million dollars is not it's not a, it's not something you take lightly and he goes what's well, just the number on our balance sheet we've got way more money than that at the bank so we're fine um, now, ultimately, we recovered that that money through, you know, the the reconciliation that happened with SVP. But that that was the moment where we knew we really made the right decisions not to get a, overextended because um, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, no kidding. Now, obviously, what's happening with AI is is crazy. No, I mean, you were talking about open AI, you know, earlier. Uh, just the growth of it, the hype around it too. Where do you think the whole, you know, AI space is evolving? <laughs> well, that's a that's like a super broad question. Um, there's probably like seven AI engines just listening in on this this podcast. But um, I, I think of 
what we're doing is being a little bit of a forward indicator of things that are about to happen, right? So let's say I'm OpenAI. I'm not saying they're a customer of ours. Um, but if I'm OpenAI, the things that I release out to the world in terms of um, chat GPT and GPT-4, GPT-5, GPT-6, whatever, the thing that happens before that is there's a massive infrastructure build out so that they can train these models. And, you know, uh, a, a large IT organization yesterday, if you want to build like a large analytics farm, that may cost you a few tens of millions of dollars. Today, if I want to train some of the most popular large language models, the amount of money that has to be invested in the computer and machinery for this is, is in certain cases, well over a billion dollars, single machine investment that you have to make. So it's kind of crazy. We're back in the supercomputing age that like, you know, Cray started something like I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and the stakes are, are wildly high as people move from um, thinking about large language models as kind of like, you know, the chatbots that we have today to what's called AGI or artificial general intelligence, which is what um, basically the, the, I think they call it the AI5 or all racing to as, as fast as they possibly can. And, and I'll tell you, this is a king sport because uh, it's not cheap. It's not a cheap game to play, right? If you're if you're Google, if you're Microsoft, if you're Meta, if you're Elon, um, you know you're 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 allocating billions upon billions of dollars just from an equipment perspective uh, to go do this. And so, um, so I think Avast is like the 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 forward indicator of what's going to come because as our business starts to ramp, that means that these large organizations are making even more meaningful investments um in the future of general intelligence and, and you know the predictions are crazy but what you've seen so far is just a small small fraction of what's to come you're talking there about the future so i want to talk about the future here together eh? imagine jeff you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of vast data is fully realized what does that world look like I would like to think that as a company, we've built something that we're aiming at. And, you know, you always set a kind of a horizon that's that's beyond what you think you can attain just so you give yourself something to really work for. Um, and, and we want to build machines that can ultimately think for themselves. And, you know, we kind of map the way that humanity has, has learned and evolved to what can be done at the system level. What we realize is that if you can accumulate all the world's knowledge from a data perspective, and you can build a system that can actually both process that data, receive new data, make correlations, and then get smarter and smarter as those correlations accumulate in the system, then you actually have this recursive loop of, of learning that's driven by new data that enters the system. Um, and the hope is that as time goes on, these new um, AI engines will be used to discover things that we don't today understand, right? You know, today, if I ask a, a large language model what the weather is or something like that, they're going to parrot back what they've just been trained on, plus some quick look up to some weather service. But if I go, you know, forward in time, the, the raw computing power will be greater than anything that humanity can bring to the table. And if that's the case, can we solve for things like clean energy? Can we solve for cancer? Can we solve for the food shortage or food, food crisis or water crisis that's happening around the world? And I have to think that, you know, there is hope there. And so, uh, you know, my, my simple and humble aspiration is to have VAST be part of this, this transformation around the world. And yeah, it, it will, you know, the question, uh, Alejandro, you have kids? I do. I have three daughters. 
What's the oldest? Seven years old, the oldest, and six-year-old, the twins. Okay, so she's 10 years from getting her driver's license, the oldest. That's right. Do you think you're actually going to have to teach her how to drive, or do you think the cars will do that for you? I think the cars will do that for, for us. And that's just one example, right? So, I, I, you know, my oldest is, is 10 as of uh, Friday. I'm not sure she'll ever, I, I'm not sure I'll have to teach her how to drive, right? That's a, that's a rite of passage for a father, and I might not get to do Maybe they don't even need to do any driving, eh? like you were saying there, Jeff. Now, here, here I want to ask you something. Obviously, we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past now with a lens of reflection. Okay, I'm going to put you into a time machine. I'm going to be bringing you back to 2016, okay? Uh, that moment that you were still working at Cetera Networks. And it was the moment that uh, right before you picked up the phone from Renan. And uh, let's say right before, you know, you're picking up that phone, that moment where, you know, obviously it took you two calls, but let's say, you know, right before that day, your brain started to think about, you know, what could be possible there of, of becoming a co-founder. Let's say you're able to be right there with your younger self and you're able to say, hey, Jeff, here's one piece of advice that you should really keep in mind before, you know, building this business. What would that be and why, given what you know now of being seven years in here? I would give myself two pieces of advice if you'll indulge me. The first is that it's always harder than you ever think it can be. Uh, and to this day, you know, Vast is, um, you, you can't build a great company without an, a great amount of effort. I don't think there are any free rides in this regard. And the more successful you become, the more slings and arrows get shot at you from the market, which kind of, is a is a is a friction against a market entrance or a market growth. So, you know, every day we kind of wake up and think tomorrow's going to be that day where it gets easier, and it never gets easier. Um, but then the the second thing I think is that if I could give myself one piece of advice or a second piece of advice, it would be um, the. Challenge yourself to question the norms that you operate with on a daily basis much harder. Like you have to, you have to build, um, you you have to build that challenger mentality and that uh, contrarian mentality into a discipline. Where every time you wake up and you start doing something that's routine, you have to ask yourself, "Is this the most optimal way to conduct myself?" And it's so easy to fall into a routine. And if everybody's doing the same routine that we've all been trained upon over the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, and everybody's doing the exact same thing, and there's no way to get an edge. And so the only times that we have like true breakout moments are when we take steps back and say, is this the best way that it can possibly be done? And the answer is almost always no. That's, that's very, very profound, Jeff. For the people that... Um that are listening, that are inspired, and, and I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so, Jeff? Oh, well, you can uh, reach out to me at jeff at vastdata.com. Very simple email. If you're the first guy in, you get to pick the, the first four letters in front of your at sign. Um, you can check out Vast at just vastdata.com. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, hey, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's awesome being here. Thank you, Alejandro.
If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.